You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The reading this afternoon is Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had the straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Uh, brothers and sisters, let's pray uh, as we come to look at God's word again. Please pray with me. Our oh, gracious Father, uh, please help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly uh, this day. Uh, please give us all ears to hear your word uh, and hearts that are ready to receive it, uh, to trust it uh, and to be changed by it. Uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, what do you do when you do the right thing in life and things just go from bad to worse? 
let's say your health's in a pretty bad spot, uh, but you do the right thing, right? You go to the doctor, uh, the doctor recommends you see a specialist, so you do that, you, you get some new medication maybe, uh, you get a whole different plan, you get an exercise plan maybe, a, a mental health plan, a, a diet plan, uh, you, you tick all the right boxes, you do the right thing, and yet your health goes from bad to worse. Well, what do you do with that? Uh, what about your finances? Your finances are in a bad spot, but, but you, you do the right thing. Uh, you, you set a new budget, you, you get rid of some bad investments, you get some advice, uh, you pay off some debts, you, you do all sorts of things in the right way when it comes to your finances, uh, and yet things go from bad to worse somehow. Uh, let's say hypothetically that the Melbourne Football Club was in a bad spot. A very hypothetical scenario would never uh, reflect reality in any way. Uh, but let's say they are in a bad spot, you, you think that they've hit absolutely rock bottom, uh, but they do the right thing. You know, they tank, uh, they sack their coach, they sack their CEO, they get a new coach, they get a new CEO, they get top draft picks, and yet, things go from what you thought was bad to worse. What do you do when you do the, bad, uh, do the right thing and things go from bad to worse? And what do you do when you do the right thing as a Christian and things go from bad to worse? Maybe some of you were, were uh, over the summer this uh, past year were thinking, gee, my life wasn't in a great spot last year. Uh, so this year I'm going to make some changes when it comes to my faith. You, you picked a Bible reading plan and for the first time ever this year you've actually stuck to it. You've been praying more than you've ever prayed before. You joined a gospel community. Maybe you started serving in some way. Maybe, maybe you made some tough choices when it comes to obeying and, and trusting Jesus. You started doing what you think is the right thing in that ethical dilemma at work. You ended that relationship that, that maybe you should have ended quite some time ago. In all sorts of ways, this year you've done the right thing as a Christian. And yet, things have gone from bad to worse. How do you interpret that? What do you do with that? What do you do when God's people do the right thing and things go from bad to worse? That's the situation in Exodus chapter 5. In Exodus chapters 1 to 4, it's pretty clear that God's people are in a bad spot. You remember the people of God, they're in Egypt, they've been enslaved, they're being dehumanized, they're being ruthlessly oppressed, sometimes beaten. They're victims of genocide. They're in a very, very bad spot. And then in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron come along and they do the right thing. They do exactly what the Lord has commanded them to do. And yet things go from bad to worse. So the big idea in Exodus chapter 5, or at least verses 1 to 21, is when you do the, bad, uh, do the right thing, rather, stumbled over my words, when you do the right thing and things go from bad to worse, don't blame God or others. Instead, remember Christ, realize your helplessness, and rely on God for deliverance. When you do the right thing and things go from bad to worse, don't blame God or others. Instead, remember Christ, realize your helplessness, and rely on God for deliverance. So first, let's look at verses 1 to 3, the start of Exodus chapter 5. And I will see here that Moses and Aaron really do do the right thing. Uh, verse 1 starts with the word afterward. You, you see that there? And so we're supposed to ask, oh, after what? 
And if you look back at the end of chapter 4, you'll see there that the end of chapter 4 uh, really was a, a kind of triumphant moment for God's people, for Moses and Aaron too. You know, in chapter 4, the Lord uh, had promised to be with them, to, to give them the words to speak, to, to give the Israelites the, the ears to hear their words. And at the end of chapter 4, that's exactly what happens. Right, the Israelites receive them. They receive Moses and Aaron, that they welcome them, uh, and they're so encouraged uh, to hear that the Lord has seen their suffering, he's concerned about their suffering, uh, and that he's soon going to act to free them from the land of Egypt. Uh, this is a great moment of triumph for God's people at the end of chapter 4. Uh, and so Moses and Aaron march straight into Pharaoh's courts, are full of faith, and optimism. Oh, they must have been expecting a positive response from Pharaoh. After all, the Lord had given them the words that had success with the Israelites. Why wouldn't they have success with Pharaoh? So we look at verse 1. Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Oh, Moses and Aaron know that they're bringing the very words of God to Pharaoh. You remember last week in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, uh, God said that the Moses was going to receive the, the, his very words directly from him, and then Aaron was going to speak those words to other people, to Pharaoh, to, to the people of God. Uh, so Moses and Aaron know that if Pharaoh rejects their words, he's rejecting God's words. So they say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. What does he say? He says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, this word festival is a bit confusing. We haven't heard that before. But the word festival there is the same as the worship that God commanded his people to do back in chapter 4, verse 23, which is the same as the offering of sacrifices that God wanted Israel to do back in chapter 3, verse 18. So this is the same idea. And the point is that Moses and Aaron uh, command Pharaoh or bring to Pharaoh uh, the very words of God that he'd given them. They do exactly what the Lord has commanded them to do. But they must have been expecting success. And yet maybe they shouldn't have been. You know, they were full of faith and, uh, and optimism. Uh, but, but we know that, that uh, in chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord had warned Moses uh, that, that Pharaoh was going to stubbornly resist his words. Right? He wouldn't listen to Moses. In chapter 4, verse 21, we saw last week that the Lord said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't listen to Moses' words. Oh, so for us, it's just not that surprising uh, when Pharaoh, in verse 2, uh, says this. Uh, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But who's the Lord, Pharaoh, saying to tell me what to do? I don't even know the Lord. Why should I obey him? It'd be a bit like me saying, Aaron, you've got to give Johnny over here $100. I say, oh, who's Johnny? I don't even know Johnny. Why do I owe him $100? That's what Pharaoh's saying. But with these words, uh, um, this second Pharaoh, I remember that the first Pharaoh from Exodus 1 died in chapter 2, verse 23. So with these words, this second Pharaoh is setting himself up in complete opposition to God. He's not saying, oh, who is this Lord? You know, let me, let get, let me get to know him more. 
He's saying, why should I listen to this Lord? Why should I respect him? Why on earth should I obey him? Around here, I'm the Lord, Pharaoh's saying. With these words, Pharaoh is setting up the main battleground for Exodus chapters 5 to 14. This is the key question in these chapters. Who is the Lord? Is Pharaoh the Lord? Or is the Lord God of Israel the Lord? And who will Israel listen to? Who will Israel obey? Who will they worship and serve? Who is the Lord? Well, despite Pharaoh's initial response being pretty negative, uh, in verse 3, Moses and Aaron double down on their request. Uh, look at verse 3. They say to Pharaoh, uh, you, kind of, you, you do understand that the God of the Hebrews has met with us. We're on the same page here, they're saying to Pharaoh. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness uh, to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And now some people think Moses and Aaron are kind of cowering in fear here. You know, they've kind of had a crack in verse 1 at asking Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave Egypt permanently. Uh, and then they've got, okay, Pharaoh, you're not okay with that. Uh, maybe you're okay with us going away for a long weekend, like many of you have done this week. You know, three days away, spiritual retreat, worshipping the Lord. Maybe Pharaoh's going to be okay with that. But I don't think that's what they're doing at all. Right in chapter 3, verse 18, uh, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Go and ask Pharaoh for this three-day journey into the wilderness that you might offer sacrifices to me. And it's been pretty clear uh, that God's intention is not that his people would be back in Egypt in three days. Right? His intention is that he would free them from the land of Egypt and bring them into the land of Canaan, right? the land that he promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. So what's going on with the three-day journey? I think the three-day journey is not about the amount of time that Israel is going to be away from Egypt, but the amount of time that it will take for them to get, a suit, get to a suitable spot for them to worship the Lord, a suitable spot for them to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. So in verse 3, Moses and Aaron are not backing down. They're not cowering in fear. They're boldly and faithfully doing the right thing, telling a Pharaoh exactly what the Lord had told them to. Saying to Pharaoh, you do understand that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. You understand that if you don't listen, if you don't listen to us, if you don't let his people go, if you say that you don't know him, let us tell you, you'll get to know him, but just not in a way that you might like. Uh, he will strike uh, all of us, including you, with plagues and with the sword. Uh, Moses and Aaron have some incredible courage. Standing here in the courts uh, of the most powerful ruler on earth. And here they are threatening him. Boldly uh, speaking the very words of the Lord. And Moses and Aaron do exactly the right thing, right? exactly what the Lord commanded them to. But in verses 4 to 18, things do not go well. Right? Things go from bad to worse. 
In verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh refuses Moses and Aaron's request. Have a look there in verses 4 and 5. And Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh says, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Look, uh, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. As the king of the kind of greatest superpower on earth, Pharaoh does not take kindly to Moses and Aaron giving him this veiled threat in front of his royal officials. Uh, he also doesn't take kindly to them uh, distracting his, uh, the Israelite workforce from their work. He doesn't like that at all. Uh, so, um, and notice also uh, that this uh, Pharaoh, just as the first Pharaoh did back in Exodus 1, uh, that this Pharaoh notices just how numerous the Israelites are. You see that emphasis there, that the, the, the Israelites are numerous. Uh, the difference between this Pharaoh and the first Pharaoh uh, is that the Pharaoh in Exodus 1 uh, saw the great numbers of the Israelites uh, as a threat to be controlled. Uh, whereas this Pharaoh seems to see the great numbers of the Israelites as an asset to be exploited. A subtle difference, maybe. Uh, but his emphasis is uh, to bring the maximum benefit to the Egyptian economy. These slaves must work as hard as possible. Uh, so in verses 4 and 5, not only does Pharaoh refuse Moses and Aaron's request, uh, but he, in verses uh, 6 to 14, rather, he ramps up the slavery of the Israelites. He ramps it up. Look in verse 6. Uh, that same day, right? Pharaoh's not wasting any time. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. What's the order? He says, verse 7, You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Uh, let them go and gather their own straw. Right, so, so Pharaoh institutes this change in the kind of production line, as it were, uh, of the Egyptian construction projects. Right, previously, uh, straw would have been brought to the Israelite slaves. Uh, they would have used the straw to, to uh, combine with the mud to make up bricks to use as they constructed whatever it is they were working on. Now, Pharaoh says, the Israelite slaves have to go and gather that straw for themselves, as well as making the bricks and being a part of the construction process. And on one level... Uh, it's Pharaoh's prerogative to make this change. Right? That, that'd be okay as long as Pharaoh is reasonable. Right? As long as he understands that if the Israelites are going to incorporate this extra task, uh, of course they won't be able to make the same number of bricks. Right? Surely Pharaoh understands that. Well, apparently not. Look at verse 8. But require them, Pharaoh says, to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. It's completely unreasonable. There's no way the Israelites can do that. But Pharaoh says rubbish. He says they would be able to do it, the second half of verse 8, if they weren't so lazy. That's the only problem here. That's why the Israelites are crying out, Pharaoh says, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So what does Pharaoh say? He says, make them work harder, or make the people work harder, uh, so that they uh, keep working and pay no attention to lies. Right, so you see the contrast here. The Lord says, through Moses and Aaron, let my people rest more. Right, let my people stop work and go for a three-day journey into the wilderness uh, to worship and serve me. A Pharaoh, in contrast, says, I'm going to make your so-called people work more. 
because they're not really your people, they're my people. And their job is not to run off to worship and serve you, but to worship and serve me. Who is the Lord? That's the big question here. Who is it that Israel is to worship and serve? And notice how Pharaoh, with these words, is really trying to drive a wedge between Moses and Aaron and the people of God and between the people and the Lord. Like all good politicians, he does it by starting a smear campaign, if you like. Uh, So you can see that at at first in verse 8, he slings mud at the Israelites themselves. Essentially, he says, you guys say you're crying out because of our oppressive slavery. Uh, But the truth is, you're just having a sook. You're just lazy. Suck it up and work harder, Pharaoh says. And then in verse 9, he slings some mud at Moses and Aaron, uh, and perhaps, perhaps by extension to the Lord. He says to them, you guys say that the Lord has appeared to you and that you're coming back and that you're going to free God's people from Egypt. You say that, but it's just a pack of lies. So I'm going to make your people work even harder so they just forget about these lies. They pay no attention to these lies that you're spinning. The truth is, Pharaoh says, Uh, These people are my people, uh, and they're not going anywhere. Uh, So in verses 10 to 14, the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite overseers uh, kind of uh, relay Pharaoh's decree to the people. Uh, You'll see there in verse 10 another contrast. You know, in verse 1, uh, we heard this is the word of the Lord. Uh, In verse 10, where we see this is the word of Pharaoh. Once again, who will Israel listen to? Who will they obey and serve? Uh, In verse 12, the the new system of making bricks is rolled out. The Israelites are busy kind of scurrying around the countryside, gathering up stubble to make into straw and and use to make the bricks. Uh, And in verse uh, verse 13, rather, uh, you see there that the uh, Egyptian slave drivers are, are starting to feel the pressure. Whether they know it's going to be a, a pretty demanding thing to keep up with this quota of bricks. So they say there in, uh, say there in verse 13, uh, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. Yeah, keep it up, they're saying. They're pressing the Israelites. Uh, and in verse 14, they notice that things are falling behind. They're not meeting the quota. Uh, so what do they do? They're getting desperate. Uh, they start beating the Israelite overseers. Not not beating the slaves, the the ones actually doing the work, but but the Israelite management, the the foremen, the bosses amongst the Israelites. They beat them. They say to them, why haven't you uh, met your quota of bricks yesterday or today or before? You see what's happened here in verses 1 to 14 so far. Moses and Aaron do the right thing, verses 1 to 3. And yet things go from bad to worse. Pharaoh refuses their request. Pharaoh ramps up their slavery. And in verses 15 to 18, he rebuts their complaints. 
I'll take a look at verse 15 there. You know, maybe these uh, Israelite overseers, you know, maybe understandably they're a bit taken aback at being beaten by the Egyptian slave drivers. You know, it's one thing for uh, a kind of run-of-the-mill Israelite slave to be beaten, but not them, right? They're the overseers, they're the management, if you like. Uh, so they go into Pharaoh, they take their complaints to him. Uh, we see there that they appeal to Pharaoh, uh, which is literally that they kind of cry out to Pharaoh. It's the same word uh, where previously they've cried out to the Lord in the midst of their suffering. Here they cry out to Pharaoh. Uh, they say to Pharaoh, verse 15, uh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Note that, servants. Uh, your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. You see that three times in just these two verses, that these Israelite overseers identify themselves and their people as servants of Pharaoh, not servants of the Lord. Right? This is how they see themselves, their, their core identity. Who is the Lord? Remember, that's the key question, one of the key questions here. Who will Israel listen to? Who will they obey and serve? At the moment, it seems like Pharaoh's the Lord. Of course, unlike the Lord who did hear the cries of his people, he was concerned about their suffering and he's about to act to free them from their oppressive slavery. Pharaoh refuses to hear the cries of the Israelites. He simply drives them back to their work. He repeats his kind of mocking accusation of verse 8. You see there in verse 17, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord and now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. You see, Pharaoh's strategy, he not only intensifies the slavery and suffering of God's people, but he throws all the blame for their suffering at their own feet. The only reason you're suffering is that you're lazy. The problem's with you, not with me. The Israelite overseers have lost all ability to communicate with Pharaoh. But all Pharaoh says to them is now get to work. But literally, go and work, or, or go and serve. Go and serve me, Pharaoh says. Now, that's not the last time Pharaoh's going to say that uh, over the next few chapters of Exodus. In fact, after the Lord puts on display the power of his mighty hand in, in all the plagues that are going to follow in the chapters to come, uh, Pharaoh eventually says, please go and serve. Not go and serve me, but go and serve your Lord. Go and offer sacrifices and worship the Lord as you should. In the end, the Lord will show himself to be the Lord. But at this point, these Israelite overseers don't know that. Right? All they know is that from the moment Moses and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh, things have gone from bad to worse. So if you look at verse 19, uh, they realise just how helpless their situation is. This is the kind of rock-bottom type moment. Uh, verse 19, the Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble. That's an understatement. Uh, when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. 
but that the Israelites here finally understood just how helpless their situation was. Now, when Moses and Aaron came back to Egypt, there really was a glimmer of hope, a burst of optimism. After all, that they said that the Lord had appeared to them and they did those miraculous signs that surely proved that the Lord had appeared to them. But now all that seems like a sham. Right? Maybe Pharaoh's right. And maybe Moses and Aaron are just spinning a pack of lies. And maybe the Lord is lying. So in verses 20 and 21, that the Israelites blame others, right? Moses and Aaron, and by extension, they blame the Lord. That they certainly get on to blaming the Lord next week. In verse 20, the Israelite overseers, uh, they're leaving Pharaoh's courts and they see Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. You see that there? And in verse 21, they give them a piece of their mind. Right? They say, verse 21, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Right? Instead of wishing uh, that the Lord would bless Moses and Aaron, as they no doubt did at the end of chapter 4, just, just uh, a short time ago, now the Israelites wish that the Lord would curse Moses and Aaron. Right? May the Lord bring down his judgment upon you. Why? Well, from their perspective, Moses and Aaron, they say, have made them obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. They've made them a stench to Pharaoh and his officials. Now, to me, that that seems a little bit unfair to Moses and Aaron. You know, that they've been enslaved for hundreds of years. Uh, It's pretty safe to say they were a stench to Pharaoh and his officials uh, before Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt. But, you know, it's a little bit irrational. They're in a time of suffering. Uh, Likewise, uh, surely Pharaoh and his officials had a sword in their hand to kill the Israelites long before Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt. You think about Moses himself. He nearly died by the sword of Pharaoh when he was a baby in the kind of Pharaoh's genocide plan there. And then when he grew up a bit, he had to flee to Midian in fear of being killed by Pharaoh. It's a little bit unfair of God's people. In the space of this very short time, they've gone from receiving Moses and Aaron as heroes to labelling them as villains and wishing that the Lord would judge them. But no matter how irrational it might be, this is what sometimes happens, doesn't it? Hurting people hurt others. That's what the Israelites are doing here. That They pass the buck, that they point the finger of blame at others. The people of God are looking for a scapegoat, and Moses and Aaron are it. So Moses and Aaron do the right thing. And yet things go from bad to worse. Why would God do it like this? Why not just just at the start of chapter 5 rescue his people straight away? Why why make his people suffer so much? Well, that's a question we're going to be exploring over the chapters ahead. But, But the short answer is that God wants to emphatically answer that question, Who is the Lord? He wants the Israelites to know that he is the Lord as he saves them from Egypt by the power of his mighty hand. And he wants the Egyptians and Pharaoh to know that he is the Lord as he judges the evil in Egypt 
uh, and he saves some of the Egyptians by the power of his mighty hand. Right? Who is the Lord? And more of that next week. Uh, still, uh, what do you do when you clearly do the right thing and things go from bad to worse? What do you do in that moment? I want to suggest three things. There are those three R's uh, that are there on the sermon outline. The first is, uh, I want to encourage you to remember Christ. Remember Christ. There's, there's lots of things you could remember about Christ. I want, to, I want you to encourage to remember one thing in particular about Christ, uh, which is that Christ always did the right thing and things went from bad to worse. So at my uh, local cafe, uh, they've got a karma jar. Uh, they're, they're, they're sitting there on the counter, and the implication of the karma jar is that if you do the right thing, right, by put a whole lot of tips into the karma jar, uh, then things will go well for you. And I reckon as Christians, we sometimes think like that. Well, we think that if I tick all the right boxes and do the right thing, uh, things are going to go well for me. And of course, in the scheme, in the kind of broad panoramic lens of your life, uh, of all of eternity, that's right. Things will go well for you. Right? Yeah, you'll, uh, through faith in Jesus, you, you'll spend eternity with God and his people. Things will go well for you. Uh, but if you can zoom in on any particular part of your life, or, or even, uh, even maybe your whole life here on earth, things might not go well for you. Things might even go from bad to worse. And if you think about it, if you remember the karma jar, uh, you'll feel really discouraged by that, disillusioned by that. Because you're like, but I did the right thing. Things should go well for me. But if you remember Christ, uh, you'll remember that he always did the right thing. And things did not go well for him. If you zoom in on his earthly life, things went from bad to worse for Jesus. Rejected, betrayed, stripped, beaten, crucified. Right? Things did not go well for him. Let me encourage you to remember Christ. It won't take away all the pain when things go from bad to worse. Uh, but it will, uh, it will mean that you won't automatically assume that whenever things are going from bad to worse, it's because you did something wrong. Right? Jesus never did something wrong, and things went from bad to worse to him, for him. It'll also give you this deep assurance uh, that, that uh, even if things go from bad to worse for your entire life, you know, worst case scenario, if that was to happen, uh, then uh, this life is as bad as it gets for you. Well, you, you might have a, a hellish life, but heaven awaits. Uh, that was the path of Jesus. Things went from bad to worse, but then he went into glory. If things go from bad to worse for you, uh, you will still enter into glory. Well, let me encourage you to remember Christ. Second, uh, realise your helplessness. Realise your helplessness. Uh, you've got to realise your helplessness to even be a part of God's people. But in Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says, uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be a part of God's people, you have to come to this deep realisation uh, that, spiritually speaking, you are poor in spirit. Well, you've got absolutely nothing to offer God. You come to God with nothing in your hand. The only thing that you have to offer God is your sin. That's all you've got to offer God. So like the Israelites in Egypt, 
uh, in verse 19, who realize they're completely helpless. Uh, We've got to realize that apart from the gracious rescue of God through Christ his Son, we are completely and utterly helpless. I mean, think about the the words that the Bible uses uh, to describe our life apart from Christ. Just think about some of those words. The Bible says we were lost before we were found. We were blind before we could see. We were deaf before the Lord opened our ears. Uh, We were enslaved before we were freed. We were dead before we were alive. But to to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to realise your helplessness. And sometimes God allows things to go from bad to worse in our lives. Because he wants us to come to that place. Uh, To come to that place where we recognize that we're completely and utterly helpless. Where we reach the end of ourselves, as it were. And all we can do is cry out to him to save us. And that's not just about becoming a Christian. Uh, That also happens during the Christian life. Sometimes, uh, for you as a Christian, the Lord's plan will be for things to go from bad to worse in your life. Why is that? Uh, well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9 uh, that it's to teach us uh, to not uh, to rely on, it's to teach us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Oh, so sometimes the Lord allows things to go from bad to worse uh, to help you to stop relying on yourself and your own resources uh, and to start relying on him and his resources. Remember Christ, realize your helplessness, and rely on God for deliverance. Some of you might have read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. In his book, he says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. A pain, Lewis says, is the megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world. I think that's true, isn't it? In our comfort and pleasure, it's just so easy for us to forget about God. It's easy for us to, to uh, be focused on our own on our own self-sufficiency, our own wisdom, our own competency, our own power to handle things. Uh, so Paul says sometimes uh, the Lord allows things to go from bad to worse. Lewis says sometimes the Lord shouts at us through our pain that we might reach the end of ourselves, that we might stop relying on ourselves and our own self-sufficiency and throw ourselves upon his mercy, that we might cry out to him to rescue us, to save us, to deliver us. Like King David in Psalm 69. You might want to flick to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 verse 1. King David says to God, Save me, O God, For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink to the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods have engulfed me. Some of you know how that feels. Some of you probably feel like that this afternoon. You've been desperately trying to do the right thing, but no matter what you do, things have gone from bad to worse. And now it feels like the kind of floodwaters of life are right at the right at your neck. You're barely keeping your head above water. Well, if that's how you feel, let me encourage you to do what David does in Psalm 69. Rely on God 
for deliverance. Cry out to God for deliverance. Look down at verse 13. David says, But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favour, in your great love, O God, answer me with uh, with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink, Lord. Do not let me sink, Lord. If you're a Christian, you know that the Lord will answer that prayer. Do not let me sink, Lord. The Lord might let you sink into financial trouble. He might let you sink into losing your job. He might let you sink into sickness. He might let you sink into losing a particular relationship. He might let you sink into depression or some other form of physical ill health. But he will. He might let you sink even into death. But he will not let you stay in the grave. Because of his great love, uh, he will raise you up from the grave, just as he did Christ, his son. In the scheme of eternity, he will not let you sink. He will raise you up to be with him and his people forever. So when you do the right thing and things go from bad to worse, don't blame God or others. Remember Christ, realize your helplessness, and rely on God for deliverance. Now let me pray for us. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that your word speaks to all the different circumstances of our lives. And, and it's honest about the fact that sometimes things really do go from bad to worse. I pray, Father, uh, that when we do the right thing and things go from bad to worse, uh, that you would help us to remember our Lord Jesus, uh, that if we're following in his footsteps, it ought not surprise us if things go from bad to worse. Uh, I pray that you would help us to realise our helplessness uh, and to humbly rely on you uh, to deliver us. Uh, I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.